0: Hey, welcome to the space usually occupied by the Scrum, GBH's politics podcast. The Scrum is on hiatus from now through Boston's final mayoral election, in part because we're doing a limited-run TV show on that race called Boston's Race into History. You can watch it every Friday at 7 p.m. on GBH Channel 2. But we're also going to include audio of the shows here Because video doesn't work for everyone and because we want as many people as possible to hear from Soraya Wintersmith, Peter Kadzis, me, Adam Riley, and a bunch of other contributors. This episode focuses on how Michelle Wu and Anissa Asabi-George plan to tackle Boston's dearth of affordable housing. Take a listen, and we'll talk to you again soon. Tonight on Boston's Race Into History, we're focusing on the big issue that consistently tops the list of voter concerns, housing. Too expensive, too little access, and with the pandemic, the problems have gone from bad to worse. We'll get into all of it ahead, the causes, concerns, and where the candidates stand. But first, let's get a wrap-up of the week in mayoral news from my GBH News colleague, Soraya Wintersmith, our City Hall bureau chief in Boston. Soraya, thank you for being here. Hey, Adam. So one of the big questions in the final election is who black voters are going to gravitate to now that there is no black candidate in the race. Obviously, the black vote contains multitudes. But you were there this week when Anissa Saabi, and Michelle Wu tried to court a certain piece of it. Tell me and voters about this event that you saw and how the two candidates made their pitches.
1: Yeah, sure. I think it's been a whirlwind since the 10 days uh, past the preliminary election. And it's clear that both of the candidates understand the significance and the opportunity to pick up support among black voters. That forum was in Dorchester. It may have been the third or fourth time that either woman was in Dorchester or Roxbury um, over the course of the week. And while they were there, uh, there was a lighthearted question about campaign theme songs. And we learned there that Michelle Wu's mother uh, learned English partly by religiously watching Oprah and singing Motown oldies. That's how Wu said, uh, ain't no mountain high enough, became a campaign theme for her. And then in the case of Anissa Asabi George, she said J-Lo is a walk-up song for her, let's get loud. Uh, in tribute to the fact that her crew and staff are fun folks and um she also said she's a fan of doja cat and to be sure there were some serious questions too about supporting black businesses about how to support youth of color in boston and how to deal with displacement which i'm sure you'll get into later
0: so this was a forum organized by boston's black clergy right uh, how do they and the people who would have been paying attention to this forum, how do they, uh, I guess, come down on various issues when it comes to the black electorate as a whole? Is there any tendency to be more socially conservative, for example, in that group or people who would have been watching that forum?
1: That's a great question. I didn't spend too much time chatting with people about their reactions to the candidates' answers. I do know that before the forum wrapped up, there were at least a couple of women who were upset that there wasn't a significant discussion about crime or a significant enough discussion about police. Um, And both of the women said that they would of course, continue
0: the conversation. Before we leave this topic, the two women who would wanted discussion of those issues, were they younger women, middle-aged women, older women?
1: Older women, older women who specifically were concerned about, you know, incarceration crime. And then this morning, I should say, uh, for the new Boston Globe-slash-Boston Black News radio program, Anissa Asabi-George did address how black voters may feel about over-policing, despite part of her platform being the need to add more cops in the interest of public safety.
0: Oh, that's an interesting wrinkle. All right, let me ask you about endorsements over the past week, because both Michelle Wu and Anissa Sabi-George have picked up some big ones. Uh, Anissa Sabi-George, tell me if I'm getting this right. She got the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Mm -hmm. the Iron Workers, Mm -hmm. the Sprinkler Fitters. Mm -hmm. Uh, MICHELLE WU got... Uh, Sonia Chang-Diaz's endorsement, the state senator who's running for governor as a Democrat, and also an endorsement from 1199 SEIU, which represents health care workers. Can you say if either candidate had a better week when it comes to big endorsements, or was it a good week for both of them?
1: I wouldn't characterize better or worse week for either of the candidates. I will say they're different endorsements and interesting for different reasons. In the case of Anissa Asabi-George, I think we're starting to see trade unions, building trade unions coalesce behind her. Um, in a way that resembles the Walsh Coalition of 2013. I think it will be interesting to see if that continues. I think it'll also be interesting to see whether or not the service workers unions that were backing acting mayor Kim Janey in the previous portion of the race actually line up behind Anisa Asabi George with some of the other unions. In Michelle Wu's case, I think Sonia Chang Diaz and the SEIU endorsement, in addition to Liz Miranda, um is is different and interesting, um, particularly in the case of Miranda, because you know her district lines up with where John Barrows won that small piece of the city, to my surprise, that small piece of
0: the city. I'm going to nod and pretend that I knew that. I did not know that. In so.
1: his home precinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She got Liz Miranda's endorsement this week.
0: Uh, let's talk, before we wrap up, about this debate that seems to be unfolding over the role of outside money in the mayor's race. Both these candidates have outside groups, super PACs, looking to boost their candidacies. But they're taking a different tack when it comes to what they're calling on those groups or not calling on those groups to do. Anissa Asabi-George said that she doesn't want the groups that uh, assembled or or were created to support her. She doesn't want them in the race. Uh, She made that statement to the Dorchester Reporter. Uh, after she was asked in particular about a super PAC led by William Gross, the former police commissioner, which was working with a firm in Beverly that also worked with Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, and it was that connection that Anissa Sabi george locked in on when she said, I don't want him in the race. Michelle Wu was asked on Boston Public Radio by our colleagues Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan if there was a place for outside groups in the race, and she suggested that there is. Let's take a look and listen.
2: I have said that I, I share Councillor Sabi George's concern that a Trump-affiliated organization is interested in weighing in in the Boston mayor's race, and that any organizations or or potential outside groups should refrain from negative attack ads because that is that is what is almost d- unraveled our democracy over the last mm-hmm. four years at the national level. Boston deserves better than that, and we are. Pushing forward with having that direct conversation with residents door by door.
0: So, Soraya Wintersmith, why is Anissa Asabi George at this juncture of the campaign saying, Get out, we don't want you, and Michelle Wu saying, Well, no, it's okay, you can stick around, but let's keep it clean and, and high class?
1: I think the really logical explanation for that is that Wu has yet to be criticized or wounded for the source of her donors. I think. Like you mentioned, having the Trump connections in that super PAC formed by our former police commissioner William Gross, we've seen headlines, and I think Asabi George means to cut off any opportunity for criticism or further wounding um, as she goes in a head-to-head sort of competition with Michelle Wu. And Michelle Wu is just saying, Keep it clean she's not going to unilaterally disarm herself it is a competition after all
0: that makes a lot of sense and using the phrase trump affiliated super pack or something like that just to remind Drop people of what's being talked about <laughs> all right saraya wintersmith thank you for being here good to talk to you about this very story.
1: happy to do it
0: see you later if you're looking for a new home in the city of boston right now good luck to you not too long ago boston had some neighborhoods that were high priced and out of reach for most residents Beacon Hill springs to mind, but also other areas with a decent supply of relatively affordable housing, like Seven Hill in Dorchester, where I lived in the late 90s. These days, though, affordability is hard to come by no matter where you look. Right now, the real estate website Zillow puts the average home value in Boston at nearly $700,000, compared to $368,000 just a decade ago. And Realtor.com has the median list price for homes currently pushing... 800,000. So what are people of modest means supposed to do? Well, you bargain hunt. This cute little bungalow in West Roxbury boasts three bedrooms and was listed for a mere $699,900. Or maybe you rent, but if money's tight, that is not easy either. Another real estate website, Zumper, puts the current median rent for a one-bedroom apartment at $24.50 a month, with some neighborhoods costing considerably more. It's no wonder, then, that housing is top of mind for Boston voters. In a June Suffolk University Boston Globe poll, more people identified housing as their most important issue than anything else, including racism and schools and education. In a follow-up poll taken before the preliminary election, housing came in a close second. So it's no surprise the two mayoral finalists, Anissa Sabi-George and Michelle Wu, are taking an intense interest in the issue as well.
2: Nearly two-thirds of our residents are renters, and half of renters are paying more than they can afford on rent. A third of renters are paying more than half of what they take in just to keep a roof over their head.
3: We talk about gentrification, we talk about displacement. The answer to that is affordable ownership opportunities and making sure that our city's residents can afford to not just rent in the city, but buy in the city.
0: Dig a bit deeper though, and it's clear the two candidates have very different ideas about what the mayor and city can and should do so that Bostonians who need homes can find them and so residents who have homes can keep them. Joining me to size up Michelle Wu and Anissa Asabi-Georgia's contrasting approaches and the state of housing in Boston as a whole right now are Denise Matthews-Turner, co-executive director of City Life Vita Urbana and GBH News senior editor Peter Kadzis. Thank you both for being here. Peter, I'll start with you. You grew up in Boston, you raised a family in Boston, and you've reported on the Boston housing market for decades now. How did the city get to the point it's currently at when it comes to housing?
4: Well, Boston became an economic powerhouse. You know, um, when I bought my home 26 years ago, They've been on the market for a year. Today, houses on my street in Jamaica Plain uh, change hands within 24 hours, often for cash, usually above asking price. Bottom line is my wife and I couldn't afford the house we live in now. So I'm experiencing this firsthand. But to answer your question, Boston is an economic engine massachusetts is an economic powerhouse the affluence of the state of massachusetts coupled with the intense affluence um, of of business in boston is pricing everyone out of the
0: market given that assessment i want to get your take on one of the flashpoints in this race between anissa sabi george and michelle Wu, and that is rent stabilization anissa sabi george is opposed to it I should say this is the idea of capping increases on rents so that people can stay in their homes longer, maybe giving developers some concessions in exchange for that. Anissa Sabi-George is opposed to this. Michelle Wu thinks it's an important idea. Let's take a look at how they make their cases.
3: Councillor Wu has talked a lot about rent control in her platform and in her work. And I don't think that that's the answer to this affordability crisis. I think it is simply a a quick sort of knee-jerk response to a larger problem. We need greater affordability for sure. We need to support our city's residents in their time of housing instability, especially thinking about the pandemic. We've got incredible federal funds in place today. We've got an office of housing stability at the city level. We've got programs at the state level to support our city's residents and to support our smaller landlords during this really difficult time. Rent control and policies that are related to rates, rent stabilization, disincentivize investment in our city. We need greater investment in our city. We need greater, we need growth in our housing market. We also need increased investment in the housing stock that exists today, certainly to preserve it. We've got beautiful stock in the city, um, and also to create and, and build more ownership opportunities across our city.
2: We are in the midst of multiple overlapping crises when it comes to housing and how much our residents are struggling to keep up with housing costs. We need more housing. We will, as mayor, I will make sure we use every possible power of city government to build more housing, to keep it affordable, to make it accessible to families. But we cannot sit back and wait until that is several years along in the process. There are families getting pushed out of Boston right now, every single day. And if we care about being a city that is truly home to everyone, we have to act in that immediate crisis and provide emergency relief there as
0: well. Peter, Kansas, very different arguments there. Whose uh, case do you find more compelling?
4: Well, it's not a question of compelling. It's a quick question of a reality check. If the legislature won't pass Governor Baker's relatively modest um, programs that would allow for more housing statewide, they're certainly not going to allow rent stabilization. Rent stabilization doesn't have to be as crazy as it sounds. In Oregon, for example, they put a 7% cap plus inflation. It can be more flexible. But um, it just isn't going to come to pass at least in the next 10 years.
0: Denise Matthews Turner, let me get you in here. Your organization just released a report on the, the state of the eviction crisis in Boston. And one of the findings was that uh, there's an incredible racial disparity when it comes to evictions. Filings, I believe, in in, uh, primarily black neighborhoods are about five times as numerous as filings in heavily white neighborhoods. Would this issue of rent control, taking Peter's caveat into account that it's a political tough sell on Beacon Hill, if it came to pass, would it help people who are facing eviction, or are there other things that are more important when it comes to solutions for them?
5: Um, thanks for that question, um, Adam. What we, I'm here to, to speak to what our community says it needs. And we are talking about, um, I'm speaking to the issues of working class black and brown folks for the most part. And what our community is telling us is they need, we need the kinds of policies that, for example, prevent a 70 year old woman who has lived, a grandmother who has lived in her apartment for 40 years in her community, that at 70 years old, because of a $500 rent hike is faced with having to leave. Any policy that does not prevent that is inadequate in our view. So what we see as policies that, you know, for our organization, put people before profit are what is necessary. Um, we do not see that um, letting market trends let the market set the um, set the determination of who lives where those policies do not work for our community.
0: Okay, That's, so what that would be my answer. Got it. So what I'm hearing there is is at least philosophically. That you you like Michelle Wu's ideas of trying to find a way to to rein in the market a bit, uh, reduce the excesses of the market. Uh, is that a fair, fair paraphrase? I would say I would
5: say whoever the next mayor is, their policies need to take into consideration that you know market solutions, let the market roll, is not does not benefit working class communities.
0: Got it. So Let me, sorry to interrupt, I wanna get your take on on another point of difference between these two candidates. So hold your thought. Uh, They're actually more similar when it comes to their thoughts about turning renters into owners. Both of them, when I talked to them, told me that that's a very important thing to do. They said home ownership is one of the ways that Boston's profound racial wealth gap can be closed but they do have some different ideas on how to get there. Let's take a look again at what the two mayoral finals have to say on this topic, and then, Denise, I'll come back to you.
2: We've already been in conversations with financing institutions and partners about how the city could creatively think about a rent-to-own program or a municipal home ownership voucher that could start to really build generational wealth in our communities, particularly for first-generation home buyers, particularly for black and brown communities. We have already seen Mayor Janey tremendously increase the amount of down payment assistance that is available. That is necessary to close the gap for a residents in a housing market that is still out of reach for far too many. Thinking about the climate overlay and how energy efficient units save even more for our residents in the long run. If you are in a perfectly insulated, passive house standard building, you don't need to pay utilities then. And that continues to accrue to a family's ability to save up, generate wealth. Um, but the, the, the big picture is we need to be focusing on opportunities for home ownership. That is the biggest part of the racial wealth gap in Boston, and I'm determined that we will use every lever of government to close that gap. You
3: know, the city has to play a leading role, especially around our access to capital, our a- access to dollars. We have an opportunity with some of this federal money coming in to really help families with that down, pi- t- down payment assistance. But we should also be working with the organizations uh, that are doing this work already. We don't need to recreate the wheel. When we have strong partners and community-based efforts, we should be supporting that, letting them do that work, letting them CREATE OPPORTUNITIES FOR NOT JUST A ho- FIRST-TIME HOME BUYER, BUT A FIRST-GENERATION HOME BUYER. MAYBE YOUR FAMILY HAS BEEN HERE FOR GENERATIONS, BUT YOU'VE ONLY EVER BEEN A RENTER. HOW DO WE CREATE THAT FIRST-GENERATION HOME BUYER FOR OUR FAMILIES ACROSS OUR CITY? BECAUSE THAT CREATES AND WORKS TOWARDS CLOSING THE WEALTH GAP. THAT CREATES GREATER STABILITY. THAT CREATES LEGACY FOR FAMILIES, FOR CHILDREN. AND home ownership IS CRITICAL. WE SEE HIGHER RATES OF SUCCESS AND ACHIEVEMENT IN THE CLASSROOM Children who live in a home that their family owns.
0: Denise Matthews Turner, for the people that City Life Vida Urbana represents, are there enough programs available, resources available right now to turn people from renters into owners? Or is more investment needed? Are more programs, more creative solutions needed? What do you see on that front?
5: Well, certainly there are not uh, enough opportunities um, for uh, renters to uh, become homeowners. But some of the efforts or some of the policies and and that we are working towards are the kinds of policies that, for example, give tenants the opportunity uh, to purchase um, the, the building that, uh, the property that they are in when it first goes up for sale. Um, and there's legislation um, that we are a part of a coalition that we're pushing for that. Um, and so that would, uh, you know, would give tenants uh, first options on um, on the purchase of of a property. we um, We see that it policies that um, that move more land from the more property, from the speculative market onto um, land trusts, for example, provide uh, community stability. And some of those programs also, can lead to sort of, to home ownership. But again, for us, the bottom line is is to create the deepest affordability with the the maximum level of community control. And that's what's been lacking for working class communities and particularly working class communities of color.
0: Peter Kadzis, I want you to respond to one more uh, point of contrast between Michelle Wu and Anissa Asabi-George. They differ also on what the best way is to make sure the market is creating more new affordable units. So let's take a look at how they make their respective cases. Uh, and I'd love to hear your take on which of them is more realistic here. So let's look at the candidates.
3: There is always an effort, and I will support an effort, to increase that percentage of affordability built on site. And as we look at that, where do we find, and it's a math formula, the sort of the sweet spot, the nexus point between the higher numbers of affordability and deeper affordability. But then also neighborhood by neighborhood, the AMI takes into account more than just the city of Boston. So in some places, places it's inflated. In many places, it's not. A real number. There's been lots of conversation to go to a Boston area median income, not just using the AMI, but also looking at each neighborhood, so breaking it down by zip code. We will never get to where
2: we need to go simply by leaning on the private sector to do that work, the fastest, the most effective way, the most cost-effective way to get to the level of support that we need for affordable housing is for city dollars to go directly to building and partnering and closing those gaps. Thinking creatively about the Boston Housing Authority and how we continue to add to protected, supported, affordable housing, as well as using every bit of our city footprint that we have, whether it is libraries that are in need of renovation and integrating affordable housing in the redevelopment of those properties or looking at parcels of land where we should be building units for home ownership that are affordable, that are climate resilient as well.
0: So Peter Kadzis, again, as we've seen elsewhere in this race, you've got Michelle Wu talking about creating a big new system, brand new approaches. Anissa Asabi-George saying, let's fine tune the system that we've been working with and make it work even better. On the housing front, do you think one of those approaches will be more effective?
4: The city is going to have to put some money in, so I would tilt, and I say tilt to uh, Michelle Wu, but neither candidate is talking about the big serious change we need to make. Boston has to build denser, it has to build higher, and there's a political problem there, that people like me who worry about their kids being able to afford to stay in the city and who own single family homes tend to oppose um, building large enough apartment buildings. You know, down on Washington Street, um, down the street from where I live at the intersection of Washington and uh, uh, right before Eggleston Square, there are two brand new five story buildings. Why aren't they seven stories? Why aren't they ten stories? Because neighbors objected. Boston's neighborhood are standing in the way of building the level of housing Boston needs to keep itself affordable and that's a very radical and unpopular measure for a politician to have to carry.
0: All right, we got to leave it there. Peter Kadzis of GBH News and Denise Matthews-Turner of City Life Vita Urbana. Thank you for unpacking this stuff with me. Thank you for having us. That's it for tonight, but do come back next week. We'll get into the growing problem in the area known as Mass and Cass, where tents and needles line the streets as the candidates put forth their plans to tackle the homelessness and addiction problems in the city. That's next Friday at 7 for now. Thank you for watching, and good night.